日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome back to the Samurai Archives podcast. This is Chris here with Forrest. And today, Forrest is going to lead the discussion. He's going to talk about Japan leading into World War II and、uh, break this into two parts. The first part will cover the beginnings of the war and it'll take us all the way through midway. And then we'll continue with part two later on and see where that goes. I thought this week we would talk a little bit about. The Pacific War.、Um, sort of focusing a little bit on the thinking on the part of Japan going in, why the war started,、uh, maybe some of the, the blunders that the Japanese committed, both in their assumptions leading into the war,、uh, how they started the war, and so on. And, and then we'll maybe see where it goes from there. Sounds good. Now, although the Pacific War. Obviously, is part of World War II. I, I think in a lot of different ways it was very, very separate animal than different animal than the war in Europe. A whole lot of different, whole lot of different levels. I think psychologically, I, I think the the I think the American investment psychologically and emotionally was 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 much different when it when it when it came to the Pacific War than the war in Europe. Obviously. People knew that Germany was a threat. They, they understood that G- Germany needed to be destroyed. But it wasn't nearly as personal as the war with Japan. And I think we need to remember that there were a variety of reasons why we viewed the war with Japan as, as really falling into a different category than our war against Germany. Yes, racism was undoubtedly a factor, and indeed, racism underscored how both sides. Viewed their enemy during the conflict. Now, in the case of the Japanese,、um, we could say the matters of race weren't codified in Japan to the extent that they were in, say, Nazi Germany. Japanese school children were still taught at the,、uh, in the pre war years that the Japanese were a superior race.、Um, conversely, the Chinese were depicted in Japanese schools as being little better than animals. And this conditioning ended up producing pretty dreadful results for the people of China during Japan's war there. And this brutalization of the Japanese army in carrying out this war against China would carry over to the Pacific War and, and, how, and what the Japanese expected of the Americans and expected,、uh, how they expected they themselves would act. Um, moreover, we, we, we should remember that for a, lot, for a long time, for many years leading up to World War II, the U.S. held a generally favorable view of China. We had kind of a special relationship with them even back then. And、um, there was an influential China lobby in Washington. Chinese art was very popular with the upper strata. A, a lot of, like, I guess you'd say better families, you know, you know that have been around for a while, you usually see some Chinese art or something. That somebody's grandparents or great grandparents picked up in the 20s or 30s. So then, when Japan invades China, a war of aggression, and when stories which did reach us of Japanese brutality against the Chinese made their way to the US, 
I mean, this on top of Japan walking out of the League of Nations, abandoning naval arms treaties, etc. The U.S. perception of Japan, which had been reasonably positive in the wake of Japan's victory against Russia prior to World War I, definitely began to turn negative um, years before Pearl Harbor. Now, on top of that, we, by we I mean the United States, I mean, we considered the Pacific to be our sphere of influence. Now, I, I don't get the sense that there were many people in the U.S. were unduly concerned about a German invasion of the East Coast. I mean, not only was France and were France and England sitting in the way, but the German Navy was, you know, at best, a harassment force. But a direct threat by Japan seemed rather more plausible. And the attack on Pearl Harbor, which was unexpected, not wholly unexpected, but, but mostly unexpected and certainly very audacious, did lead a lot of people to imagine that a Japanese landing on the West Coast was suddenly somewhat plausible. Now, we should, speaking of Pearl Harbor, usually forgotten in discussions of this matter, is that it wasn't a wholly new strategy on Japan's part. While Japanese planners were certainly influenced by the success of British naval aviation in attacking Italian ports, the underlying overall concept the sudden surprise attack on the enemy fleet in port was essentially a rerun of the Russo-Japanese War's opening salvo. In that case, the Russian Far Eastern Fleet was attacked at Port Arthur a few hours before Japan's declaration of war was sent to the Russian government. Should be noted, interestingly, that actually Japan's sneak attack, quote-unquote, in that case was not criticized in the United States generally, intended to be seen as a pragmatic move on the part of the perceived underdog. Now, there's been a lot of discussion over the years as to whether or not Washington was aware that a Pearl Harbor strike was imminent. Personally, I think that FDR and the War Department were quite sure that the Japanese would attack somewhere, but almost certainly they envisioned things playing out as traditionally predicted, with the Japanese strike on the Philippines and perhaps Guam. Now, tensions course had been rising steadily for years and spiked way up with the Japanese occupation of northern Vietnam in 1940 and that had been undertaken actually to cut off China to further isolate China from outside support cutting further lines of communication or this and they, and they, they, they took advantage basically of the French defeat um, in that, that summer and this triggered uh, a further escalation of economic sanctions against Japan and now, of course, it goes without saying, but we should remind ourselves that Japan itself doesn't really have, the islands of Japan don't really have resources as far as an industrialized nation is concerned. Like, they don't, there's no oil in, in Japan. They don't, they don't have a lot of rubber and, and so forth. Um, outside of what they could get from Manchuria and what they could, what little they could sort of get from the, their occupied uh, um, territories in China, they still had to rely on international trade. So these sanctions were definitely going to hurt them. So, and then following year, when the U.S. took the drastic step of cutting off the sale of oil to Japan entirely, the war was probably inevitable at that point. However, I mean, I think you could say that it was actually the German invasion of Russia that indirectly sealed Japan's course. 
because at that point, Japan kind of concluded that Russia was no longer no longer represented a strategic threat, and so the Imperial Navy's proposed southern strategy, that is to say, the seizure of the resource-rich European holdings in the Southwest Pacific, was suddenly very feasible. Now, the Imperial Army, for its part, and actually, let, let me interject to say that an interesting fact factor in Japanese planning in, in the Japanese Empire right into the war was that the Imperial Army and the Imperial Navy were ex both extremely influential but they're also extremely separate entities. Now for its part the Imperial Army had preferred a northern strategy aimed at taking the Soviet Far East and the interplay between the Imperial Army and the Imperial Navy as, as separate, uh, generally equal rivals is, is kind of an interesting story in and of itself. It's a little outside maybe this discussion, but they, they, they definitely pursued very different, very different strategic aims. Now, in the, case of, in the case of the northern versus the southern strategy, and with the benefit of hindsight, one might conclude that Operation Barbarossa, the, the German attack on Russia, had actually made the Army's proposal imminently more practical than what the Navy was, was suggesting that Japan do. And, while we'll never know whether or not a Japanese attack on Russia in 1941 would have guaranteed a Russian defeat in World War II, we can safely assume that the Russian winter counterattack outside of Moscow, Typhoon, would not have been feasible, and 1942's campaign season probably would have opened with the German army in a more advantageous, in a more advantageous position than was historically the case. Now, it's an interesting fact that Japanese planners in the lead-up to the war tended to regard the Russians with far more trepidation than the United States. The Japanese had, of course, fought the Russians in the 1904-05 war, and while, his, and while history mostly remembers the Japanese naval victory at Tsushima, the bloody ground fighting, and it was very bloody, around Port Arthur and elsewhere had not been forgotten by the Japanese. And the drubbing that the Japanese army had received in the so-called Nomanhan incident in 1939 was certainly still fresh in people's minds. On the other hand, the United States was essentially an unknown commodity militarily, as far as the Japanese were concerned. And it might be remembered that the only notable naval battle that the United States had fought in the previous 50 years had been the victory at Manila Bay against the Spanish in 1898. And naturally, all Japanese planning assumed that any war with the United States would be won or lost to sea, as we'll see, and it would be fairly brief. And so that being the case, the Japanese did feel they had an advantage. And in fact, going into the Pacific War, the, the Japanese did have some cause for optimism in that respect. They did possess a powerful and well-trained navy. Many of their officers, unlike their American counterparts, had a lot of wartime experience. Their carrier force was the best in the world. And America's forward bases in the Pacific, the Philippines, Guam, and so forth, were thousands of miles distant from the U.S. Navy's home ports, while the Philippines were within bomber range of Japanese bases on Taiwan, or Formosa, I guess would be what you would say at that time. Now, the Japanese 
we're not ignorant of the industrial potential of the United States. I mean, this was and had long been common knowledge. But the entire Japanese effort, the southern strategy, the decision to declare war, was essentially a great gamble. The basic thinking was that in a lightning campaign, they would seize the resources of the South Pacific, cripple or destroy the U.S. fleet in a decisive battle, presumably a rerun at Tsushima, and then essentially hold the course until the predicted German victory in Europe. Now this was based on some profound uncertainties. Firstly, that Germany would defeat the USSR and force the Western powers to make peace. The United States, presumably having been defeated by then in the dreamed-of decisive naval battle, something that would obsess Japanese naval planners right up to the very end of the war, um, and then having been isolated by the defeat of, of England, uh, or capitulation of England to Germany, would then sue for peace. In fact, the entire scheme to attack the U.S. fleet was itself based on a monumental assumption. That assumption being that any Japanese attack on European holdings in the South Pacific would necessarily bring about a U.S. declaration of war. We have to remember that the primary Japanese objectives, those areas which had the resources the empire so badly needed, were held by the Dutch, Belgians, and the British, not the United States. Now, this is a pretty astonishing fact when you think about it for a moment. The Japanese could have simply declared war on the European powers, say, well, as, as joining in the Axis war effort, and place the burden on FDR to convince a still deeply isolationist American public that imperialist colonial holdings were worth sending American boys off to die for. Probably a hard sell. Instead, however, as we will see, the Japanese gave the United States a crusade. And on top of this was the mistaken assumption on the part of the Japanese planners that the U.S. Navy, upon the commencement of hostilities, would marshal the fleet and head west in search of a decisive Jutland-style battle. Now this had been the thinking during the 1930s, for example, uh, Case Orange. But by 1940, those plans had been shelved in favor of an initially defensive posture, based on the, as it turned out, correct assumption that a war with Japan would probably be conducted in tandem with a war with Germany. So even before Pearl Harbor, U.S. military planners had adopted a Germany-first strategy. Now Yamamoto, the commander of the combined fleet, was unaware of that, and that, that is significant. Because Yamamoto's idea to strike Pearl Harbor and knock out the Pacific Fleet was based on that the assumption that the fleet would immediately set out to try to, to, to stop Japan's uh, campaigns in the, 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 the far western and southwestern Pacific. And again, this is score that's fairly that was a fairly decisive miscalculation, as we'll see. So really, the Pacific War was initiated by Japan on the basis of a mess of assumptions, heavily colored by wishful thinking, and with no plan B whatsoever, or as we might say today, no exit strategy, no, no strategy to win if the United States didn't simply roll over and sign away its influence in the Pacific Ocean, if there was no rerun of Tsushima. Because the Japanese didn't seriously consider an invasion of the U.S. mainland. 
I mean, it would have been ridiculous even had the bulk of the Japanese army not been tied down in China. Even a seizure of Hawaii was seen as being logistically impractical and, and, and probably unnecessary given the overall strategy, which, which saw a fairly quick war. So Japan's fate was tied to the misguided hope that the U.S. will to fight could be broken in a reasonably short period of time, before the tremendous industrial potential of America could be fully brought to bear. Now all of that being said, all of that being said, there really didn't seem to be any alternative to war from the Japanese, or at least the Japanese government's perspective. The Japanese Empire couldn't survive, at least not as a great naval power, without oil, rubber, tin, and so on. Abandoning the war with China at the behest of the Western powers would have been unthinkable. A political suicide for anyone who supported the idea, at a time when, by the way, political assassinations are something of a pastime for right-wing elements of the army. Of course, the tragedy of all of this, really, is that the war in China was clearly unwinnable by 1940 despite capturing many of China's most important cities, and despite resorting to everything from systematic rape to the use of poison gas, even to the dropping of bubonic plague fleas on, on Chinese towns, Japan had failed to break the Chinese will to fight, and the war was essentially stalemated. The Japanese simply didn't have the manpower. They could hold the coast, they could briefly hold corridors inland, but they weren't going anywhere fast, and there were definitely a lot of Chinese, uh, Japanese who understood that. You might argue, it's beyond the, the scope of, of my little uh, ramp, ramble here, but you could almost argue that the Pacific War, in a sense, was almost a, a frustrated reaction to the failure of the war in China. But that, anyway, that being neither here nor there. In a perfect world, Japan might have seized on the oil embargoes as an excuse to call off what, what was a pretty ignominious and, and very costly adventure in China. But, needless to say, that didn't happen. So now, going back to Pearl Harbor for a second, it is hard now, looking at the operation objectively, to see it as anything other, actually, than a very ambitious blunder, and a blunder on a number of levels. Now, in retrospect, the Japanese could have, um, probably should have, lingered in the area after making the attack to continue making strikes and perhaps to engage the U.S. carriers that were speeding back to the islands. But at that moment, the nerve of the commander on the scene, Admiral Nagumo, failed him, failed him at this critical juncture. And content that he had carried out the letter of his orders and convinced that he had caused a great deal of damage to the Pacific Fleet, elected to steam for home. Now, of course, Nagumo's caution does stand pretty stark contrast to the desperation of the Japanese Navy just two or three years later, when they would have loved to have had the opportunity to continue blasting the U.S. fleet in their home port. But when trying to understand the Japanese thinking going into the Pearl Harbor attacks, it is important to consider that Japan, even possessed as it was of such a powerful carrier force, still tended, like all the major seagoing nations, to see the battleship as the real currency of naval power. And there's probably no better symbol of that than the massive, and as it was to prove mostly worthless, Yamato-class battleship, super battleships. Now certainly U.S. naval planning in the pre-war years hadn't envisioned that the most decisive battle of the coming conflict would be decided 
as, as it was destined to be at Midway by aircraft carriers. The commander of the Japanese combined fleet, the architect of Pearl Harbor, the aforementioned Yamamoto, although pretty now kind of associated with the activities of the carrier strike force, himself believed that ultimately the war would be sided in a massive battleship on battleship slugfest. But in the event, the U.S. Navy would suffer the permanent loss of only two battleships as a result of Pearl Harbor, those being the Arizona and the Oklahoma, and, and that doesn't count the training ship, the Utah, with the other damaged battleships all ultimately repaired and returned to service. The Pacific Fleet had certainly been battered by the attacks and was in no position in the immediate aftermath to sally forth for battle, but as we've seen, such hadn't been the intention of U.S. naval planners anyway. The losses suffered did force the U.S. Navy to make the most of its unscathed aircraft carriers, and these would ultimately prove to be the decisive weapon of the Pacific War. Their importance was rivaled only by the U.S. submarine fleet, which was also largely unaffected by the Pearl Harbor attack, and shortly to begin a devastating campaign against Japanese shipping, a campaign for which Japan was to have little answer. And actually, the question of submarine warfare is one where Japanese planners totally misfuck. The Navy had made little to no provision for the protection of the vital transports that would be ferrying back the very resources that Japan had started the war over. On top of that, Japanese submarine doctrine was based on the sinking of warships, not on the interdiction of supply routes, which in retrospect is a very ill-considered thing. But the most immediate and meaningful result of the attack was the overnight galvanizing of the American public for war. In one stroke, the Empire of Japan became the most detested foe in American history, with unfortunate consequences, it must be said, for thousands of Japanese Americans, with some 100,000 of them ultimately being interned. There are also, I mean, little known, but there are also 11,000 German-born Americans or, or German residents also interned. But obviously, the predominant number of, of people in turn were Japanese Americans. But while the question of racism has come to loom large in, 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 in retrospective uh, accounts of the, the Pacific War, one could say that the intense hatred shared by the combatants was hardly unique in the larger context of World War II, which uh, had quite a bit of hatred on all fronts. Now, events moved pretty quickly after Pearl Harbor. Obviously, uh, famously, uh, needless to say, we, we shortly declared war on, on Japan, and Britain, of course, followed suit. And within a couple of days, the Japanese had launched their invasion of the Philippines. Now, the story of the Philippines is sort of, boy, that's a whole, that's a whole story in and of itself. Just to me, now I'm not by any means an expert on the Pacific War, but just to me as a layman, it's kind of astonishing to me the fate of the American garrison in the Philippines. Because we had understood for years uh, that the Philippines probably couldn't be held in the event of a war with Japan. And that was all the more the case after Plan Orange, which was to see the American fleet speeding westward to force a major engagement with the Japanese somewhere somewhere between the Marshalls and the Philippines. When that was scrapped and we adopted a more defensive posture, then, then, then the, the fate of the Philippines in Guam 
was sealed. Um, and they, they probably, after, after we cut off oil to Japan in the summer of 41, we should probably have evacuated. Maybe that would not have been politically possible, but we probably should have evacuated the Philippines. But we didn't. And so on the 10th of December, just days after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese army was landed on the Philippines. The following day, Burma was invaded. Uh, less than a week later, the Japanese invaded Borneo. They, 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 they landed in Hong Kong. Hong Kong would surrender on the 25th. Manila effectively fell uh, with, with, shortly thereafter. On January 11th, the Dutch East Indies and Dutch Borneo were invaded. So Yamamoto had said, or is supposed to have said, that for the first six months he would run wild. And, th and that's precisely what the, J the Japanese Navy and the Army did. It really was a lightning campaign. And it was probably, the, probably the, the, the crowning achievement was the capture of Singapore. Now, Singapore was enormously potent symbol of, of British power in Asia. It, 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 you could say that it, it was essentially the jewel in the crown of, of, of the British possessions in the Pacific. Now, generally, uh, the, the British defeat is sort of blithely explained away that, well, the guns are all pointing out to sea. And so when the Japanese treacherously attacked by land, the, the, the British had no chance. But that, that wasn't really the case. So the, the, the Japanese army, which was very capably led by the so-called Tiger of Malaysia, uh, Yamashita, outfought the British. Uh, the British leadership was was shit, basically. Um, so the, 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 the Commonwealth troops, they were outfought, and Singapore surrendered on February 15th. And this was a massive blow. This was, this was absolutely a massive blow. To, to British prestige, and arguably that signaled the end of, of British power in the Pacific. It, it was a, it was an enormously some important symbolic defeat in, in, in the minds of the people of Asia that, that, that would never be never be erased. So anyway, I mean, around and, you know the Japanese they went on, they invaded Sumatra, uh, and so they they essentially did achieve their primary objectives. With, within three months of the start of the war, they, they had seized the, the, all of the rubber and all of the oil and the tin and, and, and so forth that they needed. And the Japan, I mean, the Japanese moved so fast and over such a vast territory that within a few months of, of Pearl Harbor that they were raiding Darwin and northern Australia, they, 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 Polly, they, they, they would go on, they would go on not that long after that to, to raid the Indian Ocean, attack Ceylon. Now, in April, this was a fairly, this was a fairly significant month, and, and this was maybe the high water mark, actually, of the war for the Japanese.
And because in April, finally, the, the, the remaining U.S. forces in the Philippines, um, who'd been ensconced on Bataan, were forced finally to surrender. And um, a total of 76,000 men were captured, uh, 12,000 of them being Americans, and they were retreated to the now infamous Bataan Death March. And when stories from this made it back to the United States, that, 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 that was sort of, it, it was gasoline on the fire of, of the hatred of, of the Japanese. Um, it stoked that enormously. And, and, and in fact, um, they think that maybe around 5,000 Americans actually died during the 60-mile march from Bataan to the POW camp. Now, at the same time, at the same time, about the same time, the famous Doolittle Raid was carried out. Now, the Doolittle Raid was almost as audacious as the Pearl Harbor attack. I mean, it had far more uh, limited objectives. I mean, essentially, it was just it was a show of force. The idea was basically to fly bombers, which nobody thought at that time before that was possible, but, but fly actual heavy bombers off, medium bombers off carriers, strike targets in Japan, and the pilots would there continue on and, and hopefully land in, in friendly Chinese territory. And this was carried out in, uh, on the 18th of April in 1942. And it didn't do a whole lot of damage. I mean, it, it, there were a few people killed. They, they, sort of, they bombed a few factories and so forth. But it did have a tremendous morale boost effect in the United States. It also had a tremendous impact on Japanese planners. And for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it was a... I think it, it immediately called into question the overall Japanese strategy at that time, which was, a, which was to create a defensive perimeter around Japan. And this, this is, they, remember, they, they, they took Wake Island, they, 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 and, and they had, they had a lot of, uh, they had a lot of little islands in, in the southeastern, south-central-ish, south-central, south-central Pacific that they had acquired from the Germans at the end of World War One, And they were going to build on that to create a, a basically a perimeter around the, basically around their, all of the, the, the Western Pacific. So when you, when you have American carriers just sort of with impunity sail within bomber range of Japan and launch an attack. I mean, you've just really called into question the veracity of that plan. The emperor could have been blown up. <laughs> you know, this was no, this is no small thing. And I think there's no question that it put a fire under Yamamoto and the Japanese Navy to deliver on the expected decisive battle. Um, which of course hadn't happened. Um, the Americans and had, had, at that point they launched a few raids. Um, there was already there was there was naval action um, off Rabul, um, you know, off of New Guinea, but but the Americans had for the most part husbanded the, their assets in the Pacific. However, the Doolittle raid, I think, 
really impressed upon Yamamoto, it, pre it impressed upon the Japanese planners, that now was probably the time to try to force the decisive battle. So, this is where the idea of the Midway Campaign was hatched, and, and that was really the decisive, the decisive battle of the war. Now, there was something that plagued Japanese planning throughout World War II, and that was a tendency towards over-complexity. The, the core of the Midway Operation was this was to be the seizure seizure the seizure of Midway Island, which is northwest of Hawaii, and seen as being something that the Americans would have to fight for. So the Japanese Navy, including finally the Yamato and the main line and, and, and the main battleships, would be committed to capturing Midway, and the American Navy, having no choice but to respond, would then be defeated in detail, leaving the Japanese in a great place, if then they decided, okay, to go ahead and occupy Hawaii. However, the Japanese heavily complicated matters. They, they created diversion, they, they split up their forces, they sent some sailing all the way off to the Aleutian Islands, which is supposed to be a diversionary attack. Now, which is strange to me. It's strange to me. And so, some, some, the traditional view is that it was a diversionary attack. Um, which, which, which in some ways doesn't make a lot of sense. If the, if the idea is to, to, to draw out the, the, the American Navy and crush it in open battle, then I, I don't, I, I don't know why you would have a diversion. <laughs> a diversion. I, um, but, now, some historians uh, have, uh, more recently, have argued that it was basically a separate operation. That that it was okay. We'll 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 take this while the Americans are focused on Midway. But but in any event, uh, uh, you know, arguably the, the the naval assets, including some escort carriers, which were sent off all the way up to Alaska, would probably have been better served off Midway, but. The Japanese had a tendency to overcomplicate things. That was one of their, that, that was something that would bedevil them throughout the war, I think you could say, that, that their planning was, was this tendency towards overcomplexity. Over now, of course, now the Battle of Midway, this is pretty well known. Like, there's not a whole lot of, we don't really need to sort of like pound away at this too much. I mean, it's you can easily enough find out about the battle. But, the upshot was, is that we, we had broken their code, and we were waiting for them. And even though we were outnumbered, now we had three, at that point we had three fleet carriers. Uh, you know, after the fighting, after the fighting off New Guinea, we we had three fleet carriers. One of which had been the Yorktown had been pretty battered, but we put it back into to operation in, in, in kind of record time sort of managed to get it out to sea in time to be waiting for the Japanese off of Midway. And through a combination of that, a combination of, of intelligence, of course bravery, but also a great deal of luck on the part of, of, of the American naval aviation, we managed to sink four 
Japanese fleet carriers. Now Matome Ugaki, Japanese admiral, whose, whose diary survived the war and was published in, in English as Fading Victory, talks a little bit about I mean, its entries around that time. Give, give you some, it gives one some indication of just how devastating this defeat was, as he puts it, that the loss of one of those carriers would have been a tremendous blow. The, the loss of four was just absolutely unthinkable. And, and really, Midway is probably the definition of a decisive battle. Ironically enough, I mean, the Japanese had, 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 had predicated it predicated their war on the concept of the decisive battle, on winning the decisive battle, of having another Tsushima. And they got their decisive battle, but unfortunately, it didn't work out the way they wanted it to. As they say, the enemy always gets a say when it comes to plans. That was essentially the end. If Japan had ever had, and you could really argue Japan never had a chance in hell, of winning the Pacific War, but if they had even the slightest chance of winning the Pacific War, it was lost at Midway. Midway was a tremendous... Not, not, not that there was ever any question in my mind of the United States ever losing heart and giving up, but that being said, it was Midway was a tremendous morale boost for the United States, and it kind of, it was it was such a devastating blow for Japan that months and months would go by before the results of the battle were, were ever reported uh, in Japan. It was it really it, it really does represent you could say that the the high water mark for the Japanese at, at, at the Pacific in the Pacific War and and boy it was a long fall. It was a long fall after that, because again, basically, I, the whole strategy had unraveled. Yes, the Japanese had taken the resources that that they felt that they needed, but those would be steadily bled dry by the unrestrained American submarine campaign. I mean, just days after Pearl Harbor, American submarines were starting to sink Japanese merchant ships. And, and this, they, this would con continue with ever-growing ferocity for the rest of the war. And again, the Japanese really didn't have an answer for it. And they, they only very belatedly started to adopt convoys. And, and, and while the, it was, there's no question that, that submar submariner work was extremely dangerous for American sailors, so there's, they had tremendous success. Um, and consequently, again, bleeding the Japanese dry. All right, so that's the end of part one of the discussion on Japan during World War II, the Pacific Theater. And we'll come at you next time in roughly two weeks with part two. In the meantime, as always, please go to samuraipodcast.com to download all of the back episodes. And also to support the podcast by shopping on Amazon through our Amazon links. And also picking up some Samurai swag at the Samurai Archives t-shirt shop or the bookstore. So that's all for now. Catch you next time.